Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where Mitch from Planet D joins me today to discuss <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I'm talking a little slow today and speeding it up again. Mitch, tell me, sir, what have you been up to? Did, did you just say Mitch from Planet D? I, I think I said Planet 5D. I Because, okay, the, then the audio is stuck, broke out, and I'm like, holy cow. It's freezing all the time on me now, so I don't know. I ho- hopefully this is going out well. For those of you who are watching on video, if it's breaking up, then it's somebody's fault on the internet. It's not my fault. It's not TJ's fault. But I'm from Planet Five which is a absolutely fantastic website, and I love it. Oh wait, anyway. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Uh, hey, you be- know what happens three months exactly from like tomorrow? What? NAB. Oh, yeah. NAB's coming. Uh, Mitch and I and Devin will all be at NAB this year, from what I understand, uh, wandering about the show floor, uh, harassing vendors, and <laughs> maybe finding a few NAB parties. Woo-hoo! There was some uh, discussion, actually, and this is kind of weird in, in a side note, but. A number of people were like, what's NAB? And, and, and this was in some of the YouTube comments. They're like, I've heard of CES and some of these other things. And I thought NAB had kind of established itself as the premier video. And, you know, I know they have broadcast in the title, but the radio guys are generally relegated to like that back corner of one section. And they're sort of sad every year. Uh, what do you think? Is NAB not well known? It depends upon your involvement in the business, because frankly, for the first, I don't know, year, year and a half that Planet 5D existed, I didn't know what NAB was. I didn't go after Planet 5D started until like year three. So if you're new, you probably don't know about it. If you're from Europe or something, you might not know about it. Well, for those of you who don't know about NAB, the start of NAB is broadcasting. So originally it was uh, radio and uh, uh, FM, AM type of stuff, transmitters, uh, broadcast mics, and so on. And then it moved into video broadcast. So you're still talking like affiliate stations and what have you. And those stations use cameras, and that sort of rolled into an entire use of the floor for uh, video products, including switchers monitors, cameras, and all that stuff. And now a lot of the video product releases and even photography release information comes out at NAB. Usually it's heavier on the video side of things. Uh, And then it was interesting that Nikon chose to do their releases at CES this year, which that's not even really where you normally would see photography-related announcements. I mean, when's the last time CES had something super interesting in the video or camera department? Yeah, uh, you got to remember <laughs> that CES is the Consumer Electronics Show, and from what we had the conversation about the Nikon D5, it's primarily a photography camera, right? And it may be a pro camera, but it it's not really aimed at... So, I mean, it wouldn't make any real big sense to do something like the D5 at NAB because they just don't care about video. Sorry, Nikon, I know you say you do, but... So far, you haven't really proven it to anybody. Anyway, uh, so it made sense to sort of announce that then. And we expect 
of course, that there will be numerous awesome video cameras announced this coming year. Um, Knock on wood. I'm hoping Canon puts out something of note to compete with the D5. That would be very nice. Well, theoretically, if if everything goes on par like Canon usually does, they have it typically in the pro market, in the pro DSLRs, for example, they're on a sort of a three-year time frame. And the 5D Mark III was announced in March of 2012, and so they're overdue. Ah. 2013, 14, 15, 16, so... If I need Mark II, Mark, Mark IV, <laughs> I've already started <laughs> with the confusion factor. Um, it's due. It's overdue. So realistically, that needs to be out this year. All right. Before we dive into the show, Mitch, what do you think? What? If 5D There's Mark IV, will 4 mean 4K? No. I. Everything that I've heard still says that Canon's going to protect themselves, even though, I mean, it's it seems insane because some of the cameras we're going to talk about today, everything's shooting 4K, everything's shooting 4K, whether you use it or not, it's a whole nother matter, but everything has the capability these days of shooting 4K. And I'm still being told by people who say they know that the 5D Mark IV is not going to have 4K in it. That is probably going to be disappointing for many, many Canon yes. users. And again, the reasons are they want to protect the high-end, the 1DX and the 1DC, which will most likely have 4K. They want to protect their new video camera, I mean, not new, the video camera line with the C100, C300, all that kind of stuff. So they say, if you want to shoot 4K, we're going to do that in those cameras, and our DSLR will be primarily for photography like Nikon. All right, that was interesting. That's kind of what I wanted to know from you, Mitch. And now I think it is time for the news. Time for the news. First thing I wanted to talk about, and actually this is sort of really kind of a problem I've seen in my own collection of gear, is the action cam. Uh, GoPro recently released their Q4 earnings statements, and profits are down substantially for Q4, although they are up 16% year over year. Now, normally we don't talk about any sort of financial analysis on this show, but where this comes into play is that GoPro has kind of been cutting staff. They're laying off 7% of their staff uh, from various departments and so on. And I wonder, Mitch, and this is something that has been bothering me too, is the action cam market saturated? I mean, GoPro's got the $130 offering of their low-priced Hero. They've got the Session, which uh, dropped quite dramatically. What, $200 in the first uh, six months of its release? They've got the high-end covered all the way up to the Black 4 Pro Edition, whatever. And it's it's like really <laughs> now from $500 all the way down to basically like $60, there's an action cam at every step in price tier all the way across the board. Do we have too many action cams? Have we reached maximum saturation? I have a sound bite for you. They're dead. Dead, dead, dead. That sounds... Dead, dead, dead. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, DJ. I'm so glad you brought this topic up. Um, 
I've never been a big action cam kind of guy. Uh, no, I'm not going out and skiing and uh, doing gobs of time lapses and stuff because I spend my whole day sitting in front of this computer trying to find awesome news stories to tell you people about. <sighs> However, in doing a little bit of research, uh, I discovered this morning uh, there's an action cam rumor site. Now, there's a rumor site for everything these days, which kills me because I said years ago, eh, why would I do a rumor site? Because technically, everybody's already done every rumor site possible, right? Well, no, I just discovered there's an action cam rumor site uh, run by the same guys who are doing Micro Four Thirds rumors and Sony Alpha rumors and... I don't know, GoPro rumors. I'm surprised they're not just the GoPro rumors. But anyway, the very first camera on there is this Tom Tom Bandit. And if you watch the little video they have, and it looks really bizarre, right? It's it's kind of one of those long skinny things as opposed to the square box. Sort of looks like Sony's like offering GoPro. that right. uh, tubular sort of unit. Tubular, man. It's tubular. Uh, interesting. I've watched the first four or five minutes of that video and it has motion and heart rate sensors and they're using that to detect quote unquote the exciting bits of the video that you record and when you're finished recording if you shake it it will automatically create a highlights reel of what you've recorded and based on the motion and the heart rate and I don't know where the heart rate sensor is. I didn't watch enough of it. So it's it's interesting. There obviously is still a market, right? Yeah. Maybe GoPro is not in the right hunk of the market because I don't know of any GoPro that creates a, a little mini highlight reel for you, does it? Well, the mini highlight reel, uh, definitely not a GoPro thing, but I seem to remember some Kickstarters that were offering similar sort of features where they would kind of go through your video or whatever you've shot for the entire day and create these little vignettes. Uh, Google also, their Photos app, uh, if you have that installed on your computer, it will ingest video and photos and create little stories for you out of things that you did during the same date, which is pretty interesting. If you do that inside the device, though, I wonder how good the results are. <laughs> I don't know. We it's yet to be seen, DJ. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm a little goofy today. Here, here's a good one for you. Great googly moogly. Who's that? I think where I'm going with this is actually the problem is is how many action cams do you need, and where is the significant improvement over the previous generation? Because when we look at the very first GoPro. It was, you know, it was pretty low tier. 1080p didn't have a lot of quality in the image. The next step was better low light performance. The step after that was 2.7K footage at 30 frames per second, which was pretty nice, looked a lot better, better in low light. And now we're up to 4K. And now heroes, the next hero in the line, it has to have something better in order to get people to buy it. And what are they going to add? I mean, it's a tiny little camera. They've crammed it full of as much electronics as they can get into the body. And I don't see a substantial step forward from there. 
And now that particular market is being commoditized with a really easy to find chips, really easy to get sensors and lens packages that can be bought all in one setup and put into a box. And the only way to distinguish yourself then becomes what we have either a lifestyle brand or, you know, a uh, really interesting feature set and software suite. So do you think GoPro is just going to continue to lean on their GoPro lifestyle as a method for sales? Because I don't see them having something truly advanced in their next iteration of the hero. Well, the, the other thing there potentially is 360 cams, so you can see everything around, right? Ah, those are just gimmicks man i I know they're quote-unquote gimmicks but i'm i'm seeing more and more of this stuff i what maybe you shouldn't listen to me because i thought drones or quadcopters were going to be just a flash in the pan so look what the hell's going on with those things i feel like 360 is going to be the next 3d you know like for three years everybody was really excited about 3d and then it disappeared maybe the, the two things I think they could do to keep the GoPro line going strong would be, A, add manual controls for all of this stuff that normal filmmakers want in the camera. That would be really nice. Add a lens attachment or something. Well, I want to be able to set my ISO, and okay. I want to be able to set my white balance. I don't want to have to just use ProTune, which is like a magic whatever they want, and then have to do weird stuff in post with it. I also would like to see better low light performance. So if they could do that, you know, maybe I they could talk me into spending another $499 on yet another action cam. But honestly, I have a bag full of GoPros right now. And they get used less and less as I get smaller cameras that shoot 4K that have an actual lens that I can adjust and features exactly. that are easy to use. I mean, if, you, if you're starting to use mirrorless cameras... And we've talked about those in the Panasonic X100 or 1200 or whatever the hell it is you're using. Um, I mean, those those are not that much bigger, right? Absolutely. So other other for filmmaking now and again. Now, if you're wanting to jump off of a cliff with the, uh, you know, a parachute a camera on your head, you don't want a larger mirrorless camera with a lens attached. You want something like a GoPro. Uh, or maybe even this Tom Tom, so it can detect your heart rate and stuff. I was I was also interested. I threw in another thing in that uh, section, which I didn't really investigate. Uh, well, I was over at Photography Bay, um, and he's got an article about a new action cam with a wrist remote. So, so you've got the action cam, which is kind of tubular, and then you got a a little wristwatch-looking thing in order for you to put on your body so you can see what you're recording and stuff like that. So I threw that in there just because, you know, there's all kinds of different action cams coming out. These these things apparently are very popular, and you and I are just not in that segment. So GoPro, I guess, is really kind of screwing up because they were riding on their laurels for a long time, and now they're kind of hurting because they haven't been innovating like everybody else is. Now, speaking of action cams, uh, I saw this while I was searching through the varied lists of action cams. This is the Yocam, and uh, this is yet 
another action cam Kickstarter. Um, the, the distinguishing factor about the Yocam is its size. This is a super petite, very tiny little camera, and they're advertising it as a take everywhere. No case required in order to go underwater with this little guy. And the specs are pretty decent. This looks like it would pretty much be in line with the specs that you saw of the Hero 3 Black Edition. Uh, so you're talking 2.7K, 30 frames per second, uh, really small uh, form factor and weight, and they've got a checklist here comparing it to the <laughs> session. So, uh, you know, this is interesting, but it's a Kickstarter, so may not appear for up to a year. And by that time, do you think it'll be relevant, Mitch? I I watched the video of this the other day. And, and again, maybe my reaction is just I'm too old school. But they show a lot of people in the video. They have it wrapped around their neck like on a on a lanyard or something. And so they're constantly they constantly have it with them and they want to record their life. So every time they're doing having some fun little moment. They just pull out their little camera and press the little button, and they're recording their little video. <laughs> My life's just not that interesting, <laughs> I guess. Uh, even, even if I'm out doing something and I think, oh, well, I'll re- I, I, maybe I want to record this. I, I've got my iPhone with me. Uh, so... <laughs> I don't know, maybe if I strap this to my bicycle or something and I can record my lovely bike ride. What, when am I ever going to watch that video? That's the other side of it. But, you know, if you're recording everything, nobody wants to watch it, which is why they have those little apps or that like this probably does to trim it all down automatically for you and give you just the highlights. I, I kind of wonder about a lot of this stuff. I mean, you don't live blog every single thing you do all day long. Hey, look at me. I'm going to the bathroom. You know, look at me. I'm like making dinner and it's just SpaghettiOs out of a can. Great. You know, wonderful things to see just what I want. And yep. with these things, as the GoPros and the uh, TomToms, all these action cams continue to be released – our cell phones are getting 4K video. Our cell phones are getting water-resistant uh, bodies that you can actually drop in your tub and still film something. I mean, really, to cross the line to strapping your phone to your forehead to jump off a cliff, <laughs> you only really need maybe some you know, protective casing or uh, you know, waterproofing of some kind, and bam, you are to an action cam. And yeah, Mitch is <laughs> putting this on his forehead right here. I'm slapping my iPhone 6 Plus on my... Yeah, I mean, that's not very much more cumbersome than a GoPro rig strapped to your forehead. You could probably pull that off without too much issue. I don't know, especially something like this Yocam. Even if you carry it around with you, why would you use this over your cell phone, especially with a a fixed lens? It doesn't really make sense to me. And I I see these things blow up on Kickstarter, and you're like, okay, this is great. You know, people are spending... Uh, $200 a pop, and they're buying all they can get of these in the pre-orders. And when you get them a year later, there's 20 other devices that are out on the market that yep. do what this does or do better things than this particular product does, and they do it at the same price or less, And it, then it's not really worth it anymore, right? Yeah. 
Um, maybe as a dash camera, which is one of the things they're advertising, because those are those are great if you want to watch uh, videos of crashes and people dying and stuff. Uh, it's it's fascinating because they've they were they had an eighty thousand dollar goal and they've already raised four hundred forty thousand dollars. Uh, it was four hundred. For some reason, forty was what stuck in my mind. It was four hundred forty thousand. So killing it in terms of sales like you said they've got 2000 people that have bought one so i don't know yeah not my style man i just don't understand where the market's going to go and i think it's going to crash at some point in the near near yeah. future uh yeah. they're not they're not as useful to me as they used to be now that there are so many small cameras out there and i don't know if they'll continue to be useful for everybody else and if you don't see a reason to upgrade to the next generation you're going to hold on to your old stuff your hero 4 black edition may last you 3 or 4 years yeah speaking of kickstarter i you know i <laughs> i actually bought something on kickstarter what a year and a half ago it was one of those deals where at the time i was like man i probably really need that like you said you know, it might sound really cool. And by the time it came out, it's like, <laughs> uh, this is this is a, a battery from Power Practical that has two USB things. Um, and it also has a DC adapter. So technically, I could I could charge my uh, DSLR with it, which is what I was sort of thinking at the time when I decided to back it. Took them an extra year to get this out. They had problems in China getting it delivered and all that kind of stuff. And and I have it now. Woohoo! But I don't really. Is your mind it. blown? Is it uh, an amazing oh, no. battery? The best you've ever seen? No. And and in fact, they talked about. I mean, it's it's heavy. You can't feel it, obviously, but it's it's kind of clunky. It's about the size of a an iPhone, but it's also double. I mean, it's massively thick. It's How many battery. amp hours is that monstrosity? Oh, I don't... You want to talk things. Let's see. Uh, does it does 4.5 AH tell you amp hours? Yep, AH. So 4.5 amp hours or 4,500 milliamp hours. Yeah. So they they claimed it would charge my iPhone like seven times before it died. So far, I'm getting about two charges out of it. Wow. Before I need to recharge it. So anyway, it's you just happened to mention the Kickstarter, and I was like, oh, I got one. So many of the things. Uh, there was uh, a camera broadcasting system uh, that allowed tethering of certain types of cameras to your cell phone. And I, I think it was called the Camera Ranger. Um, I might be getting this wrong, but... By the time it was released, there were six other products, plus my very own uh, hack to show you how to do it for 25 bucks, and I had thrown down 200 and some odd dollars on this device, which is ultra frustrating, and you know that was only within like a six-month or eight-month period. Right. A lot of these ty- a lot of these products, unless there's something really crazy and innovative, I mean, either someone else is going to copy that idea and do something better or similar before the Kickstarter executes, or it's going to be so irrelevant because it takes so long that it's not going to be something you want anymore. An example, a prime example is that stupid cooler. Did you see the cooler? Oh, oh, 
I mean, that oh, is yeah. what really you want speakers, you want a blender and a battery charger in your cooler, and you're gonna spend several hundred dollars on that. I just and how much did they raise? It was millions, it was like, it was like the highest of, grossing yeah. Kickstarter ever. And now I've read interviews with the founder, and they're not sure if they can you know, stick a Bluetooth speaker inside of this uh, cooler and get it to work in time for their release date. Like ah. it's crashing and burning big time. Uh, I know. I know. All right. Let's stop talking about disappointing things and move on to something a little bit more exciting, happy, what have you. Uh, Fuji, a camera brand that I don't talk about very much because I actually was trying to find someone I know that owns a Fuji camera, and I could not. So I don't know anybody that owns a Fuji camera. That's a given. This is the X-Pro2. It's been three or four years in the making, and Fuji is releasing that here, what, uh, I think in two more months, uh, the announcement says that this will be $1,600. The specs look very, very similar to the x T1, and this will be an APS-C size sensor with a 24 megapixel image. Uh, I don't know. This doesn't look nearly as exciting as I think it should for a $1,600 camera. I mean, it definitely has the cool factor. Uh, We've got, uh, this is DP review here, we've got an image of the camera. It does look like a very classy, uh, you know, rangefinder style camera, but the specs... Mitch, do you see anything that just jumps out you and says, "I need this camera"? Google Google. No. Um, speaking of people who own Fuji cameras, Karen from Australia, or one of our writers, actually has an older Fuji camera. So there, there's one person. And I'm, I'm actually, I do know one other person. I have an old, old point-and-shoot Fuji camera from the like early 2000s. Uh, that takes a uh, media format that is long since extinct. And it was, at that time, one of the best little tiny point-and-shoot cameras I'd ever used. So, I mean, I, not knocking Fuji. It's just right. that, the, as a camera lineup, like the only time you really see these is when someone is buying something extremely stylish to go with their wardrobe. You don't really see them as a pro photographer or videographer tool. <laughs> I, I, I that's that's not the right thing to say. Guys, if you have one, I'm sure you love it. I'm sure it's the best camera ever. But are you even excited about this camera? Because I'm looking at the specs here again, and the, they already released the X-T1 quite some time ago, and there's a megapixel jump. But otherwise, you know, similar autofocus systems. We're talking the same viewfinder, which everybody seemed to be excited about in the X-T1. Uh, frame rates are the same. Video, uh, yeah, video specs are pretty much the same. If you're using a flash, I guess the sync is a little bit higher. You can go to 1 250th. Uh, otherwise, you know, these are one for one. And then the X-T1, that camera is touted as being their top-of-the-line model with water-sealed titanium body and, and all that stuff. And you're not getting that in this as expensive or more expensive, uh, you know, uh, upgrade to the Pro X1, 2, whatever. You know, it's like... <laughs> X Pro 2. I I was watching the video because you... Uh, I, you, I don't think you linked to it, but um, I found a video talking about the X-Pro2. <clears throat> Excuse me. And interesting features 
The highest ISO is 12,800. That would have blown your mind like, what, really? three years ago? <laughs> 12,800, and the guy was like, oh, and you'll probably never need to go that high because it's, you know, the low light capabilities are just so awesome. Like, uh, we're going to talk about the Nikon D5 here in a minute. And the other thing, which is interesting, is that it doesn't have the OLPF low-pass filter. And we've seen quite a few cameras come out recently without that. And they touted it because, you know, you get sharper images without it. And that's what everybody, you know, says you get rid of that filter, you get sharper images. Sometimes you get more ray. And so they've they've tweaked the sensor a little bit in order to make it not have more A, but yet still be sharper because it doesn't have the filter, which is great. But this seems to be a big trend, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, Nikon, I think that's the first one that really comes to mind to release one without uh, the optical low-pass filter. And uh, weren't they touting that for astral photography? Wasn't that the... Anon did that, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Nikon did, did too, but Nikon did it you know, they did it in the two models. You could have the, the model with the filter or without. Yeah, they had the eight, 800 series and the 800R, I believe. Right. And, it, and Canon did that. Didn't Canon? Canon did it in the 5DS, though. Or it, right. So that was, they were yes, they late to the game after yeah. Nikon already. Right. Yeah. Nikon, Nikon was pretty much first in the big camera market. Unless you were crazy and you were willing to dig into your camera and scrape that sensor protector off, uh, there were actually some modifications where people were removing the low-pass filter from their 5D Mark III, which right. I'm not brave enough to do that. But uh, no, it is interesting. I don't know if it's that much of a difference. Personally, I think I would rather have it on. Uh, More is is very frustrating in video. You shoot somebody and you weren't paying attention and suddenly in post you realize their shirt is crawling. It's, it's not. Well, again, again, though, let's back up and remember that these cameras are primarily photography cameras and Moray isn't that much of an issue most of the time in photography. Uh, so you and I put on our video hats and go, well, yeah, we really, we need that. Which goes back to, you know, the, the whole conversation about filmic look isn't really incredibly sharp, right? You know, you want a little bit of, of not nuance, but a little bit of blur in order to make it feel more like it's not really real life. Yeah, I reduce sharpness a lot of times in yeah. post simply because it's too crisp and too clear and it feels kind of sterile to me. Now, back to the Fuji uh, X Pro 2 before we wrap that conversation up it's just weird that fuji has released a camera that has very little in the way of new features in comparison to the rest of the market and they took four plus years to do it this seems to me and mitch maybe you disagree i don't know uh that fuji maybe will become irrelevant completely other than style <laughs> Uh, if they were irrelevant already, I suppose would be the next question. <laughs> it comes down to, I think, what you just sort of mentioned a little bit ago. People fall in love with a brand. I fell in love with Canon a long time ago. I'm interested in Nikons and Sonys and all that kind of stuff. But 
I kind of invested in Canon and I kind of really like Canon, right? I confess, I, I, I started there and that's where I continue to go. Karen, for example, just really talks in this. She wrote an article about the uh, X-Pro2 yesterday before it was officially announced. And she's like, oh, I'm just really excited about this. Uh, you know, she, she happens to like rangefinder cameras. Uh, she is interested in this. She's had Fuji before. So there's a seg- – I mean, I was thinking watching a football match slash soccer match on TV yesterday – and there's an ad in the background for Minolta. And I'm like, who buys Minolta? <laughs> you know, but so there's but there's an you know, one of the crawler ads for Minolta. And I'm like, there That's are lots of brands that are still viable that people still purchase cameras for from and and they like their Minolta or they like their Mamaya camera. I mean, there's all these different brands and it's great to have different brands because we want to have competition, right? Um, Pintax. Yeah, there's, well, I, I even was doing, if you go to planet5d.com, there's in the sidebar, what camera brands are you shooting video with? There's a poll that I've had up there for about uh, three weeks or so. And I started putting the listing brands and I'm like, what brand should I put on there? And of course, you know, Canon and Sony and Panasonic and Blackmagic. Uh, and then I went, Oh, well I need Samsung and then I need Pentax and Oh, there's Olympus and, and Oh, by the way, Leica has cameras and then JVC has video camera. And so there are a whole bunch of cameras, right? Different brands. Uh, and by the way, so far, Canon is leading with 48%, Sony with 26%, Panasonic with 26%, Blackmagic with 14%, Smartphone with 8%, Nikon with 8%. I just find it fast. I wanted to know from our readers, you know, which was, was Sony really taking over? I wish I had this poll from like three years ago, uh, but Sony, Sony has a bigger hunk of the video share than I expected. 26% of our readers who are responding. Now, so, while you were talking, Mitch, I was actually, I was listening, of course, but I was also course. looking through the lens selection of Fuji's lineup. And you know what? I, I might need to step back and stop complaining about this because their lens selection is pretty nice. I mean, a lot of F12s, F14s, uh, some really good focal lengths in their prime section. These look like really nice, little, cute, well built primes. And uh, even in their zoom range, they've got some really good looking stuff. Uh, a 40 to 150 F2.8, a 16 to 55 millimeter F2.8. This is actually a really decent lineup of lenses. So, I've, you know, with that sort of selection, maybe it's more, it's got to be much more relevant somewhere than yeah. I think it is. Well- Let's go back and remember why do camera manufacturers put out cameras? Uh, to sell lenses? Exactly. That's Canon's number one deal. They want to sell lenses. They, they make cameras purely to sell lenses. I mean, realistically, and, and they want you to have... Well, now let's go back to the Nikon story, right? Nikon's lens mount fits no other cameras right i mean it's really tough to put a, a nikon on a different on a different camera isn't it 
Well, uh, you could go to mirrorless, but uh, you can't go yeah. to Canon. Can't go to Canon. You can't go to Sony, if I remember right. And I get, and I get really confused on all these different adapters and stuff. But I've I've had insiders tell me over and over that the whole reason we manufacture cameras is to sell more lenses. So you think the profit margin on the lenses is the oh yeah much higher. I suppose the raw materials for a lens are are fairly affordable. It's just the process of coating and you know cutting the glass and putting all the elements together. There's a lot of optical design, but other than that, it's probably ninety percent profit per lens if you think about what a lens is built out of. Uh-huh. Huh. I never really that, looked at it like that. That's a good point, Mitch. That's what what? Can we write that down? <laughs> DJ says Mitch made a good point. Good job, man. And and, and how about this one? There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, you were mentioning the uh, D5. Let's take a look at these high ISO images. Uh, a few people have managed to get some shots with the Nikon D5. And here's a full res image. And this is shot at ISO uh, 102,000. And Mitch wrote in the show notes, and it kind of asked me what I thought of this compared to the A7S. And I would say, you know, I'll make this as large as I can for you YouTube viewers. It's two bears uh, sort of playing in the water at very, very uh, low light conditions. And this looks pretty comparable to what you would get out of the A7S and most likely the A7S Mark II. Uh, Does that mean that uh, Nikon and Sony will be tied for low light performance? Could very well be. I I'm impressed with that. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, my throat. Uh, I found it very interesting. Everybody's got their own perception, right? Uh, because the the um, thread there, there's some comments underneath there, and a lot of people were going, "Eh, I don't like it. Doesn't look that great compared to the Sony A7S hmm. or Mark II or whatever." Um, but I was the, pretty impressed at 102,000. The issue I see for Sony that Nikon has sort of taken care of a long time ago is autofocus. Uh, you know, Sony A7 line of cameras is the autofocus is uh, bunk. It's bunk. Eh. And, you know, even with native glass on the body, it is, you know, in the range of like a rebel Canon camera in, in terms of autofocus. It's not very good. And Nikon, uh, in, even in their lower lineup, has really good autofocus. And, you know, yep. the D4 had great autofocus. I, I suspect the D5 will have excellent autofocus. And even if it's not quite as good as the A7S in low light, you put good autofocus in there. And that's a world of difference, especially in low light where you can barely see and you're hoping that your camera can see what you're pointing at because you're relying on your viewfinder or, you know, whatever to see. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's fascinating to me to see the different comments. Uh, autofocus is, of course, for stills, right? We don't do well, autofocus in video. You can yet. use it in in video. Uh, a lot of times you can pre-focus before you start filming. And yeah. the right. faster that is, the less annoying it is as well. Right. So I'm, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm impressed with these images. I think if, 
if you apply a little bit of noise reduction, they will be really awesome looking. Uh, I'm I'm pretty impressed. I would love to see something like this in the Canon line. Yeah, Canon hasn't been killing it nearly as much as the uh, 5D Mark III when it was first released in the low light performance. Even right. even in their uh, C300 and C100 line. When those first came out, people were astounded by the low light performance, and I was just irritated by it. It was noisy as all get out and not usable at all. And these people are screaming, yes, look at this low light performance. But when the A7S came out, it just stomped all over that dream. Those guys got nothing on this guy. Go to the show notes if you want to see more images of the D5 in action. Uh, There are a ton of low light, high ISO images at various settings. So you can look through those and kind of decide for yourself what you think of those. I would like to see the raw files. If someone out there hears this show and uh, posts those, that would be great because I want to load them into Lightroom and pixel peep just a little bit. Not going to spend $6,000 on a camera though. Just uh, (laughs) putting that out there. All right. Next on the list here is actually the Pin F. And Olympus has been doing some strange and interesting stuff. Uh, Sometimes I'm excited for them, especially with their image stabilization system on sensor. And now they've got this guy. This is the Pin F, at least a rendition, a rendering, a possible image of a new camera that could be released sometime in the future. Olympus has shied away from having features like 4K footage internally, as well as basically most of the video features you're seeing in other cameras in the same build and price range. This looks like a GX8 competitor. Mitch, do you think they're going to include high-end features like 3-axis sensor image stabilization, or will we see 4K finally from these guys? You're asking me. Look into the crystal I, ball, my friend. What am I, Mr. Rumor? If it has video on it, it will have 4K, unless you're talking about Canon. Uh, <laughs> everybody's putting 4K on there, right? Uh, I did a little tiny research and found Petapixel put out an article, uh, which didn't say a whole lot different. But there was also another article that had the price range, which was rumored at for that kit, which is the bottom price, which is $1,630 US, um, which seems a little steep to me, but that's that's the kit price. They didn't have the price without the lens in the rumor. Um, And I found it slightly interesting that the little grip that they have is an accessory. It's not even part of the initial purchase. I, I don't know. I'm just not fascinated by smaller little cameras. I'm, it's just doesn't appeal to me personally. I like bigger cameras. I, I like beefy. They just feel better in my hand. And so, yeah, it's going to have 4K. If it doesn't have image stabilization, then it's not going to be worth a whole lot of weight at this point, right? Because all the other Olympus is Olympus I. How do you say that? Yeah, the OMD line. Uh, the last couple have all had their three-axis image stabilization built into the the sensor, yeah. so it moves the sensor around. Right. Uh, I want to see that in uh, Panasonic lenses and, or Panasonic bodies, but Panasonic's kind of focused on doing that with the traditional in-lens image stabilization. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, Olympus, like, I love the look of their bodies. So if you look at the OMD-1 and the 5, they have that sort of old uh, film camera look. You know, they're very pointy and metally, and they've, they've got a lot of angles. And I, I kind of want one for that reason. But my GH4, even though it doesn't look as attractive, it, it does more and it's a very useful tool for me. So I can't see chucking that out with the bathwater in order to get something that's very stylish in nature. And a uh, form over style, I suppose, would be the argument of choice yeah. here. Yeah. You remember the discussion we had about silver bodies versus black bodies a couple of weeks ago? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we used to really make a decision. We didn't pay 50 bucks extra to get a black body because it looked pro. Um, so there, I mean, there obviously is vast appeal in some people for style. I, I don't care what it looks like. I want function. Sorry. Hey, no problem. Uh, one other thing that people do care what it looks like is the image quality of the Sony S5. Uh, if you haven't been following the forum threads, there's been a lot of complaints about mushy images and strange artifacting and everything else in 4K images in S-Log uh, when shot on the Sony S5. And this is really frustrating, and they haven't really heard anything about the FS5 from Sony for quite some time. And finally, this morning, Sony announced a statement, and the statement was, we are aware of the perceived issues, and I want to underline that perceived issues of performance <laughs> of the FS5. And what they're saying, basically, in the statement is that we think you're using it wrong, but we'll look into it, and if we find anything that we think is actually wrong, we'll address it. So they're not um, really admitting that uh, <laughs> that anything is wrong with the S or the FS5. They're simply saying that uh, they will kowtow to the people complaining and investigate further. Uh, do you think this will lead to any actual corrections or? Are we to turn in our FS5s and send them back to B&H for a full refund? Um, I didn't spend that much time looking into this issue. I think you spent a little bit more time looking into it. And I know uh, Hugh Brownstone, who reported on it for us, uh, did some investigation. And he was pretty disappointed, although in his... He used FS5 uh, from B&H. Let me throw that in there again. Uh, because uh, for a week, and he didn't see these issues, but there are, like you said, there are a lot of people complaining about um, or is pixelation, or I've forgotten exactly what, how they describe this. How, do, how are they describing this problem? So if you have a straight edge of some kind, like a, a very um, prominent window seal for example or something like that you'll start to see like mushing and tearing on those images as you film and move your camera around and it seems like the problem from the videos i've watched is pretty much inherent to s-log and a number of uh sony sort of i don't know what they call their ambassadors but they're, they're people that sony's given the camera to first are basically saying well of course that's what you're going to get because it's an 8-bit image captured in this type of compression, and obviously you should not use S-Log at this high of an ISO because you can expect artifacting and it's your problem. And 
if you do look at some of the images that were shot at high ISO without S-Log, the issues aren't as predominant, but it's enough that a lot of people are really upset about it, especially when this camera is only like 15%, maybe 20% less expensive than the FS7. So you want good quality out of this thing, but you might as well spend a little bit extra if you're planning to shoot in low light and you don't want to deal with these issues. Now, this might be a firmware fix if Sony is willing to do that, uh, because my guess is the hardware in the FS5 is most likely very, very similar to the FS7, if not identical, and the two are just pared down from each other, but they do want their distinguishing line, and that could mean that uh, they'll just tell you to sit on your thumb and spin, I would suppose. Ah. <laughs> uh, here's here's a here's a good soundbite for you. You have failed me for the last time. <laughs> Sony, Sony, Sony. I mean, it's it's one thing to acknowledge there's a problem, which they they've sort of done, like you say, perceived issues. So they've they've at least put out some comment. Uh, but to say that you're only going to address it if you find an actual issue, quote unquote, it's like, I don't know. It almost I, sounds belittling to the end user to say like, yeah. hey, hey, buddy, I'm sorry that uh, you don't know how to use a camera. And because of that, we'll we'll make you feel better. We'll look at it. Yeah, good job. Good job, guys. Like, well, you, you keep working hard. You'll get it someday. I, I don't know. It, that sort of perceived thing is sort of a thumb in the eye. And then you look at Sony's past actions. Uh, there were capabilities available in the camera that were simply turned on by an XML file on the memory card to allow for 4K internal recording. Some of these other things... I don't know. I think Sony's sort of still finding their legs in a lot of this department. They're not quite organized, and maybe the company's just so big that uh, different groups like their firmware group and their design group aren't working together properly and vetting some of these things before they just chuck them out into the market. I think that's true for many manufacturers. Um, If you ever get time to talk to the guys behind the scenes, and this is true for many companies. It's not just camera manufacturers, but it is often the case that the people doing the engineering on the software don't talk as much as you would think to the people working on the hardware. And therefore, when things don't go right, it's kind of like, well, it's his problem or no, it's her problem. And oh, what, we're supposed to work together kind of thing. <laughs> and you're, and you're, you're just kind of dumbfounded because you just, you just make the assumption that everybody's working together as a team, and in many cases, they're not. Many times the, the management doesn't want to spend the extra time for them to work together because they figure if they, if they work on the software – it's going to work when they put it on the hardware and it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. The other side of it, I'm sorry. The other side of it is that testing these things is often very difficult. I mean, you kind of, it's kind of like, um, when you, when you, when you produce a new drug, 
unless you have a large audience to test with, you may not find out that 1% of the people are going to have a reaction. Well, that's why you do the medical testing. I mean, as a former college student years ago, I checked myself into a company called Harris Labs, and uh, they medically experiment on people with these drugs before they go out into the market. That's but usually, usually their sample size is not necessarily big enough to find all the problems. That's true. And I think, I think, I, I always remember. I don't know if you ever heard about it. There was a test that was done. I think it was over in the UK, where they brought a group of twenty people in to do similar medical test, and they gave them a pill. And within an hour. Seven of them were writhing on the floor, puking their guts out, blood coming out everywhere, and one of them died. Whoa! Out of twenty people, and it was like, oh, okay, I don't want to do any medical testing if that's the way it works. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't expect those kind of negative reactions, right? Uh, but anyway, to get back to cameras, I really digress there. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you talked about Sony giving cameras to the. To, to their ambassadors and say they've got a 50 of those. That's not a very big audience, right? True. And a lot of them are probably professionals doing regular work on a normal basis and not spending as much time as probably could be spent digging deep into every minutia of the camera. Right. Uh, it, it is hard. You know, beta testing stuff, even like video games, any product in general, you, you can't catch every single bug. But... Right. When one of your key features is recording 4K video and it's a video camera, you would think that the analysis of the video image would have been done pretty much across the board. That that feels like 101 of camera design. Like you don't make a, a photography camera and it doesn't take very good pictures. Like why would you do that? I mean, you've right. basically wasted your time. And it, that's sort of what the uh, FS5 feels like. Like it has all the specs. It's a video right. camera. And then, wait a minute, we forgot to figure out how to record video? What? As you point out, it's it's probably a quality issue, and, and there's a, a likelihood, and we're, we're making some suppositions, but you and I have both been in the software world and, and doing retro tests on every possible function is costly, right? Definitely. And so maybe what's happened is they did some basic testing and didn't just do all of the other testing because it's more expensive and it just slipped through and they don't want to admit it. Well, hopefully Sony will address these issues. Uh, For now, uh, stay tuned for more FS5 news. I'm sure we'll hear (laughs) more and more complaints about it. Uh, we have, uh, Mitch even sent me a couple of, uh, notes from planet five D, uh, mentioning people mentioning that they've turned their camera in. So, right. you know, that, uh, if it's that extreme and I don't know, to me, uh, 3200 ISO isn't quite low enough light performance for, uh, people that are using this for documentary and, and news gathering. So I, I would think maybe the F or the a seven series, would probably be a better, more affordable fit for some of those guys anyway. And then you're getting your low light performance plus your stills performance. And those have been pretty well tested by 
most people and the A7S and the A7 Mark II lineup all shoot 4K internally, uh, probably with, uh, actually, (laughs) with less issue, it seems, than the FS5, which is a more expensive body. Let's, let's, Let's also not forget, by the way, the perfect example of all of these issues is the Black Sun problem. Ah. And we're still seeing that, aren't we? Yeah, they have yet to release a firmware update to fix that. That's only affecting the PAL friends in Europe. So if you're shooting at 25p, uh, that can smack you in the face. But uh, Now, what, what camera are you talking about? Now, that was the A7S Mark II. Okay. Are you just well, quizzing me yeah. here? Because we also know that the Black Magics were having those problems. And, oh yeah, I think you know, they f- didn't I, they I, fix all those though. I think that one is taken care of. I I do not know the latest firmware updates on all of those different cameras. Uh, say six months ago, it was still an issue. Maybe it's fixed by now. My point was not so much to call out a particular manufacturer, but the fact that this. Black Sun problem was first reported that we recall on the Canon 5D Mark II. Ah, oh, yeah, that's right. Seven years, it's seven years old. Yeah, right. So, so here we are, seven years later, and we're still getting cameras that haven't tested that before they're released. And that's a that's a rant. Why, 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 why would anybody put out a camera without testing that? But yet we get them. I don't know. I don't know what their list is. I don't know what their test process is. <laughs> I feel like some of the manufacturers would do well to partner with uh, reviewers, like the really crazy Pixel Peep reviewers, and right. just hand them over the camera for a month, uh, maybe with an NDA, and let them dig through everything and then complain about it back to the manufacturer. And you would probably get some people that would be willing to either volunteer to their time for free or take very low pay or get paid in camera gear in order right. to do that testing for you. I don't know how they contract out their beta testing, and, and maybe that isn't the best way to go. There's probably some holes in that theory. But, man, <laughs> do something because the quality yeah. is important and – I don't want to spend a bunch of money on a camera and then have it have problems. Now, last thing here on our list, and I think we've covered everything pretty well, is actually a question from one of you guys. This comes from Phil, and he's asking about the Tascam DR70D and the Zoom H5. And he wants to know, basically, which one would be a better fit for capturing audio for both interviews and documentaries? Now... I don't know, Phil, if you're interested in recording externally or internally, but to address this, I would say the DR70D is a bit less fiddly when it comes to mounting to your camera. But if you're wanting to record directly into your camera and you want headphone monitoring, a combination of things can get you that without having to use either one of these devices. The Canon 5D Mark II, if you go ahead and get a Magic Lantern installed on that body, you can use the jack on the side, and there's an adapter for it. It's a TRRS to TRS adapter with Magic Lantern that will give you headphone output of the audio being recorded in the camera 
on the 5D Mark II and combine that with something like the Ceramonic or the Juice Link or the Beach Tech XLR audio adapters, and you will have a great way and a small compact unit to record audio directly into the camera with XLR inputs and headphone monitoring with your 5D Mark II. That's a a little bit convoluted, but the adapter is super cheap. It's like 20 bucks, and you can save some money actually on your XLR inputs uh, because the Zoom H5 and the DR70D, they're a little more spendy than these XLR audio adapters. And if you look on eBay, which I... You know, it seem like people have been commenting lately, telling telling each other that I'm the king of eBay. Well, I do spend a lot of time on eBay, but if you look on eBay, the Juice Link and Beach Tech units are often sold for a very affordable price. And I'm going to check right here because we're at the end of the show. And let me see, Juice Link. End of the show. <clears throat> While you're doing that, just just for Phil, in case you don't know, Magic Lantern is or anybody else. Magic Lantern is a firmware hack, quote unquote, uh, that runs on top of the camera that's available for the Canons. Almost all of the Canons, you can get Magic Lantern. And if you go to magiclantern.fm or something, I've forgotten the URL, but just Google Magic Lantern. You can go download that software. It's free. Ding! And that will add additional functionality to your camera. Of course, there are the caveats that, uh, you know, it may break your camera, may brick it. Nobody ever It's pretty highly developed on the 5D Mark II uh, because so much research and time was spent on the 5D Mark II with Magic Lantern. I would say, I would venture to say the T2i and the 5D Mark II are the most well-set-up cameras for Magic Lantern implementation. So... I'm not going to tell you that it's not going to break your camera because that would put me in liability for your camera being broken if it did happen. But the chances are very, very, very unlikely. And the UI for Magic Lantern has gotten much, much better on the 5D Mark II. Now, here's the audio adapters I was uh, speaking of. This is a Beach Tech unit. Uh, There are several flavors. The DXA5DA is a fairly decent unit, but it is passive. They've also got uh, this one right here is a very nice one, the DXA SLR. That one has internal gain. This one's 100 bucks. Very affordable. Uh, Also, if you want a little bit more gain, I believe the Beach Tech DXA... Uh, SLR provides about uh, 25 or 30 dB a gain, and the Juice Link units provide roughly 38 to 40 dB a gain, which is a little bit more if you have a quiet mic, and you can get the Riggy here used 250, 149, uh, 40, yeah, so really affordable prices, and if you keep an eye out, you could probably swing one for in the $100 range very easily on eBay, definitely worth doing. And those combinations will get you a really decent, very small setup for your DSLR recording video and audio. Now, speaking of Beach Tech, and I didn't actually put this in the show notes, did you see that uh, weird Beach Tech release uh, just recently? No. So Beach Tech, and I know Robert, I've talked to him, he's a really nice guy, um, I, and he's heard all my complaints about the size of the Beach Tech, not, or I mean, Juice Link knobs juice link it's not beach tech juice link i'm getting these mixed up (laughs) so juice link i know robert he's a really nice guy but uh i've always complained about the size of their fiddly knobs on the beach or on the juice 
man, I'm just doing this all over again <laughs> on the juice link units. And right? then he was asking me like, what features would I like to see in a future juice link device? And I said, well, I would love to see, you know, wireless audio. And they've kind of come up with this wacky, huh. uh, sort of method for, uh, syncing audio. And basically what it is, is each one of these little devices receives a sync uh, sound from the main controller simultaneously. Uh, this is the Juice Link Darling, uh, if you're not familiar with it. And it's it's a little spendy. It's like $250, I believe, per unit. And I hadn't planned to talk about this. This is kind of just extra fluff at the end of the show. But but it's a, it's a weird deal. And I guess to, to you, Mitch, in the time where everybody has a wireless audio device, and I've seen the Audio-Technica units as well as the Rode units down in the $300 and $200 range, uh, the System 10 that I just bought, I think I spent uh, 220 bucks on that. Uh, is it worth it to get something sort of older technology style like this for audio? I, I mean, this requires syncing, so uh, do you think it's worth it? Well, gosh, DJ, nothing like putting me right here on the spot. Um, fascinating in that this is the first time I've seen him do a recorder for audio, right? Because DAR is Distributed Audio Recorder. Yes. Um, and looking quickly at this, uh, you've got multiple pricing so it's if you if you need all of these little bits let's see the transmitter is 28 bucks the audio recorder is one of them is 265 and the other is a 199 there's two different prices there um i'm gonna have to do some reading in in this because i hadn't seen it yeah, he's been uh robert's been posting a little a little bit of updates on this for the last year and a half and uh, cool. there hasn't really uh, – JuiceLink kind of goes in spurts. They'll release a new product, and then they'll run with it for two to three years, and then they'll release something new. And, and this is the first new item I've seen probably since NEB 2014, and it, it looks cool. I, you know, it's interesting, and it's a, a really different concept. Uh, maybe I, I should explain how that actually works instead of just uh, talking about sync sound, but <laughs> – Basically, what they're doing here is with one controller, they are sending a sync tone at the beginning of the start recording time to all the devices simultaneously. So each of these individual units can either record audio or send audio out to headphone jack uh, for monitoring. And you can you can do that from each one individually. And then in post, you take all your memory cards out and you look for the sync tone at the beginning and you line everything up. And... That's an that's a very tried and true method for syncing audio, and it's still something that you can do yourself with the slate. And that was the idea of the slate: is you click, and any audio that's being recorded on any device will see a spike in the audio, and you can line that spike up. Now, when you have wireless audio that's going directly to your camera, you don't have to worry about syncing audio or doing any other stuff. And now we have devices like uh, Pluralize, the software system that will basically 
it's it's really good. It's like 90% accurate in syncing your audio. So if you have a bunch of different recordings, you don't even have to worry about that. You just drop it into Pluralize, hit enter, and it'll generate an XML file that you can load into Premiere that has all your audio lined up with all your clips. Really simple, easy to use. And now this is sort of, you know, going back old school before we had some of those things. And it's 2016 now that this is being released. So I'm not trying to bag on JuiceLink. They make really great uh, preamps. And I'm sure this has uh, a pretty decent, if not excellent, uh, signal to noise ratio for its recording and uh, lots of gain and all the other things that JuiceLink is known for. But I don't know. Do you think something like that is practical for a, a post workflow, especially on like an indie budget? And then with the price? I, it totally depends upon your needs. And this, frankly, uh, and I like Robert. I've talked to him many times as well. He's he's super nice guy. Super nice guy. Really, really wants to help people out with their audio. And he really knows a hell of a lot about audio, especially in terms of, all of the electronic side of it. So again, I'm not I'm not bashing Robert in any way, shape, or form. But as a rant, in general, and I do a lot of surfing of of new products and stuff. Here's my general rant. And you and I have talked about this before because I get pre- you and I both get press releases, and you look at something and you're like, it takes you 20 minutes to figure out what the hell the thing is. Yeah. Right? These people, Robert. You need, <clears throat> excuse me. You need to put out a two-minute video that explains the purpose of this and why you would use it. Because reading through the text, unless you really totally understand what the concept is, I'm I'm staring at this, going, "Why in the hell would I need this? What what like you said? What 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 what? Tell me some." It just drives me crazy. Yeah, and the only reason I caught what this is actually doing from the get-go is because, you know, I understand a lot about this type of stuff. And, you know, when they say slate tone, I'm like, ah, okay, I see what you did here. But when you read the press release, it starts out with a great alternative to using wireless lav mics, transmitters, and receivers. Well, then you're thinking, okay, this is juice links alternative to other wireless transmitters and receivers and it's got a wireless unit on it and it's got a little tail that's the antenna of course these are wireless units well no no they're not (laughs) how would i have figured that out just from like glancing i I probably wouldn't and i wonder you know how how did the the layman out there who get a press release like this figure it out even those of us who semi know what the hell we're doing uh, I'm sorry, Robert, and others. It's not just Robert. You know, I've talked about this before. You really got to explain this for the newbie who doesn't know, or, or noob, I'm sorry, noob, <laughs> who doesn't know, uh, we can argue over how you pronounce that word, doesn't know what the hell's going on. Maybe maybe DJ can pick it up and learn it and understand it quickly, but even you are having some difficulty. So why... I think the issue here is actually you have the you need to do the Kickstarter sales pitch with these items. You need to say, like, here's what I got. Here's the problems it'll solve. And here's the price. And then here's the specs, because if you see what it is and then you see what problems it solves, 
immediately that gets you excited about the product and it sort of gives you the basic understanding to decide whether you want to purchase it or follow it or whatever. And then after that, you can dig into the technical details about, you know, uh, what the gain levels are, all the other random features that go along with said product. And when you watch good Kickstarter videos, that's what they do. They're like, have you ever, it's the infomercial sales pitch. Like, have you ever broken your fingernail while trying to open a jar? Oh, isn't that awful? Here's Uh your solution. And then they show it used. And then like, then they tell you like, oh, this is the pinch and zoom camera that opens your jars. Yeah, sweet. You know, it's like, that's how you do it. And I, when I get flooded with press releases during, you know, CES and all these other uh, seasons, it's just, Sometimes you you give up and you just don't even look at them because when you see that there's like 20, 20 paragraphs of text and you have yet to find out what this item does, you, you, you don't feel like reading it and spending that much time on it. So guess what? Me, Smarty Pants, while we're talking, says, well, I'll go search YouTube. So I type in little Darlink, Juice Link, and guess what? Robert's got a video New for NAB distributed audio recorder a year ago, and he doesn't even put the video on his own website. So he has the damn video. Really? I haven't watched it, obviously. But and 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 I'll just grab the the link for the show notes in case anybody wants it. Uh, but yeah, so he's got a video, but it doesn't even have it on his own, on his own website. Sorry, Robert, if you're watching, put that on your website, would you? Assuming it explains what this thing is. Yeah. Anyway. I'm going to throw a little uh, thing in the show notes for you guys since I wasn't expecting to talk about this device. I do pay attention to audio releases from both JuiceLink and BeachTech. A lot of times they get overlooked as audio solutions for uh, recording because people sort of frown on recording directly to camera. But uh, honestly... that that is a it very works. convenient way and it's it does work especially yeah. if you have a nice high gain amplifier ahead of your camera input so i don't know i like beach tech a lot i as juice much tech. as i've or juice link i like juice link and beach tech actually i own both of their products i have the riggy 333 i have the beach tech dxa slr um so both juice link and beach tech you know, provide great audio interfaces for cameras uh even the ceremonic units uh those are the affordable version of some of this stuff uh, offer up a lot of value if you don't mind a very large package um it's a good way don't don't uh bash that sort of recording until you've tried it you don't necessarily need a dedicated uh field recorder if you're just a single person running equipment uh, Think about what your sound needs are before you spend a bunch of money on a Zoom H5 or H4 or Tascam's brand new DR70 701D, whatever model (laughs) you want to talk about. Mitch, do you got anything to add before we wrap this up? No, it's a great show. I'm I'm glad I threw that question in there because it certainly sparked some conversation conversation and and you certainly know your audio stuff um i was sort of expecting you to get into the irig but you didn't even mention that so let's not go there we'll save that for another show but well hacks aren't necessarily i mean software hacks probably enough a lot of people aren't good with soldering irons so i don't tend to recommend that for the faint of heart if you want something like that you will definitely search it out and find it and on dslrfilmnoob.com 
Yeah. Great show. Love, love talking to you, DJ. All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up. As always, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And remember to find Mitch where? Uh, some website called? Planet 5B. And, of course, guys, you can find me on Twitter at DSLR Film Noob. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud and anywhere audio podcasts are distributed, including iTunes and so on. Be sure to write in rank and tell us what you think about the show. Uh, YouTube comments are a great way to bring in questions. Uh, let us know if you want us to answer more questions. Uh, we're just trying this new format out. So if that's the case, maybe we'll toss a few in and do some free-form discussion on some of the questions that we think are really interesting. So keep that in mind in the future. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs>